As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Well, hey, you guys. Hey, guys. This is a special episode. I know. For like, because of where we're recording it, we're together again. I know. We haven't recorded together in... Well, since we did one of the Doc Jams together. Uh Yeah. I mean, because when we first started, we were always together. Partially because I could not have ever figured out how to not be together and do it. (laughs) But then when we started doing it separately when COVID hit, it's like we just sort of never came back together. But here we are, reunited. It feels so good. It does. I have the loudest bird in the entire world outside my window right now. Yeah. I think they're fussing at each other. I don't know what they're doing out there. Yeah. All right, guys. But we do have another school shooting that we're covering this week. Tough stuff. Absolutely tough stuff. This is the Virginia Tech massacre. This is requested by Morgan. Um, that did not give us the last name. So thanks, Morgan. And thanks to Mark for writing this one up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like most people are familiar with this case. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, just an overview. In 2007, the United States and the world watched in horror as a massacre unfolded at Virginia Tech University in Blacksburg, Virginia. Carried out by a lone gunman, the attack left 32 people dead, plus the gunman, and 23 more injured, plus countless students and faculty suffering from mental health issues moving forward. That's the weight of that. I mean, we talk about the ripple effect all the time. It's so awful. So, you know, just be ready for that. These are always really tough cases. Yes. And I just want to go ahead and get into the truer warnings right now. Yes. So we're going to talk about gun violence, mass shooting, mental illness, suicide. Yes. And if, you know, that's not your cup of tea, totally fine. We'll see you next week. This is just a one part. So 
Yes. It won't cover multiple weeks. Before we start the case, though, we want to let you know that we have even more content on our Patreon. And what is Patreon, you ask? I was going to ask. Yeah, I knew you were. Patreon is a service that allows you to provide monthly financial support to your favorite concrete... That's not words. That's not words. To your favorite content creators, you know, like us. So it's a win-win. You get bonus episodes and you help us to keep producing content for you. Yes. And we wanted to let you guys in on a little bit of what we have coming up this week on Patreon. Yes. So tomorrow our murder mixtape drops and we're covering the murder of Sierra Joggin. And here's the little background on that overview. On July 19, 2016, 20-year-old Sierra Joggin was home from college and staying with her family in Metamora, Ohio. On this particular Tuesday, she set off on her bike to ride 7.5 miles home from her friend or boyfriend's house, but she never made it home. And then after three days of searching, investigators finally located Sierra's body buried in a nearby cornfield. A Metamora man was responsible for her murder. Several years before, he'd attempted an abduction of another young woman on her bike and was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he only served three. Sierra's family, understandably, obviously, was devastated to learn that their daughter's life had been brutally cut short by a repeat violent offender who was living nearby and nobody knew it. Yeah, if you want to hear us scream about these types of crimes and being let out early for good behavior, then you definitely want to check that episode out. Yes. There's a lot of anger there. Prep your windows. Exactly. On Friday, we're dropping our third installment of the current docu-series we're covering on Doc Jam. So that's just our show where we go episode by episode on different docu-series. Right now, we're in the middle of Heist, which tells the story of ordinary people who almost got away with extraordinary heists. And this week is part one of the Money Plane Heist. (laughs) Bless him. A man enlists his friends and family to steal $80 million from an unguarded plane warehouse in the airport. No guarding whatsoever. And God forbid these men get hot in the warehouse so the windows are open and they just walk up and steal a bunch of money. But you guys, it goes off the rails. In a big way. In a big way. So definitely check that out. And then we have one other episode coming out this week. Yeah. Sunday, we drop our weekly catch-up episode. We lovingly call it the T to the fourth power Y. Written out, it looks like titty. Yep. We just gab about life, what's going on, talk about fun stuff. What we're watching, what we're doing. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. We Our have favorite one, Oreos. Yeah, we have one entire episode about Cracker Barrel dressings. Yes. So. That one was near and dear to my heart. It really was. And actually, a lot of I, I thought people were going to quit this show after this. And people were like, I loved it. So, you know, you just never know what we're going to talk about there. It's just whatever comes up in the moment. So head to patreon.com slash killerqueenspod to join. Exactly. And if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, join our email list. You can visit killerqueens.link slash email to join the list and be the first to know about fun happenings. And if you can't remember these links, if you scroll down in the show notes, like the, the text and the like description of this episode, we'll have all these linked. And you can also see all of our coupon codes from our sponsors this week. If you happen to be somebody who skips the ads, but you still want to know what the coupons are, scroll on down. They'll be right there. Yeah. Easy peasy. So I think now's the time. Let's do it. Yeah. 
around three and a half to four hours west of Richmond, Virginia. Maybe a half hour from the West Virginia border lies Blacksburg, Virginia. With a population of around 45,000, according to the 2020 census, Blacksburg is the birthplace of serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. Hmm. Man, I miss talking about him. Would we call him a serial killer? I know. I was going to say it. Serial killer, like air quote, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, who are we asking? Him or... Yeah, exactly. Because he did walk to Japan and killed people there. Fire tools. (laughs) Ropes. Bare hands. His feet. Yeah. Exactly. We did cover um, the confession killer. That was one of our first stock jams that we did. But um, yeah, that 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 one's up for debate. Also located in Blacksburg is Virginia Tech University, formerly Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. And while Virginia Tech's main campus is in Blacksburg, it also operates campuses in the Dominican Republic and Switzerland. Through its core of cadets ROTC program, Virginia Tech is also considered a senior military college. Like, I wasn't expecting that. No, but... But there it is. Their school mascot is literally just a turkey that they called Hokey Bird. (laughs) Student athletes there compete in Division I, which is the highest level sports in the Atlantic Coast Conference. Several athletes have come out of Virginia Tech and gone on to play in various professional sports leagues, including the NFL, NBA, and MLB. Virginia Tech is home to several research institutes and operates a research portfolio of over $520 million. And it's considered an R1 doctoral university, which is very high research activity. Virginia Tech is the top employer in Blacksburg with over 5,000 employees. I literally, like, before this episode, I did not know any of this stuff about Virginia Tech. Same. I've been there once for... To use their bathroom. <laughs> yeah. The, there was a UT game against Virginia Tech, but they played it at... I was like, I was remembering Virginia Tech, but they played it at the Speedway, NASCAR. It was like a NASCAR oh, sure. You know, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, what it was called, but it was in like, what, Johnson City or something? Okay, I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, I don't remember Yeah, anything about it. I remember that, though. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wild weekend. <laughs> okay, the thing is, though, we're not just here to talk about the history of Blacksburg, Virginia Tech, that kind of no. thing. You know from the title what we're going to talk about. So on April 16th, 2007, 15 years ago, a gunman killed 32 people and wounded 17 others before killing himself. It is, to this date, the largest school shooting in U.S. history, followed by the Sandy Hook Massacre. And only the Orlando nightclub and Las Vegas shootings have more casualties, with 49 being from Orlando and 60 from Las Vegas. Mm. Yeah, and at the time, of course, like, it's just awful to have to be, like, at the time was the largest, you know. Because that obviously implies or says that But wait, there's more. Exactly. Oh, it's awful. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the gunman. And we're not going to give we're not going to give his name a lot of importance here. So, born on January 18th, 1984 in Asan, South Korea. His family migrated to the US when he was 8 years old. His parents came to the US for the same reason that many do, to give their three children opportunities they didn't have in their homeland, a better education, and a shot at a better quality of life. Initially, they lived in Detroit, but moved to the Washington metropolitan area after they learned that it had one of the largest South Korean communities in the U.S. Eventually, they settled in Centerville, Virginia, in Fairfax County, and became permanent residents of the U.S. as South Korean nationals. They joined a local Christian church, and the gunman himself was raised in the church, although after the massacre, a note was discovered that contained writing in which he, quote, rallied against his parents' strong Christian faith. The family opened a dry-cleaning business in Centerville and tried to live a simple life, chasing the American dream. Taking a dive into the killer's past reveals a strong history of mental illness. Before the family came to the U.S., some members of the family in South Korea said that he did act differently from other kids. They thought that he was selectively mute, choosing sometimes to just not talk. They suspected that he had a mental disability and learned at a slower pace. His grandfather said that he never made eye contact or called him grandfather. He would never move to embrace anyone. Like, it's more than just being shy, which I think a lot of people very early on thought that that's what it was. He's shy, he'll grow out of it. Because I know they said his dad was kind of that way too. Mm -hmm. But he grew out of it. But this is like... Like, he's, like, never made eye contact with anybody, even people in his family. We'll see. And, I mean, I'm thinking about it, I guess, from... Because I was painfully shy. And I grew out of it. But even when I was in the throes of the painfully shy, I still spoke to family members. I made eye contact. I reached out and, you know, like, embraced family members and things like... But there were people that I was comfortable with. Yeah. This guy didn't have... It seemed to be... And even people who he was, quote-unquote, comfortable with, like his sister, very little speaking. Right, yeah. It's like, well, he might say a couple words to this person. That's how you know he's wildly comfortable with them. Like, I mean, it's just, it's, I feel like it can be easy to make it be like, oh, he was shy as a kid. No, this was something totally different. So back in the U.S., when he attended elementary school, A family friend said that he would come home every day and throw a tantrum, saying he never wanted to go back to school. But teachers and classmates recalled that he was a standout in school. Their elementary program was established to be completed in three years, and he completed it in one and a half. He was often pointed out by teachers as an example of what other students should should strive to achieve. His friends said that he wasn't picked on, and he was friends with several students, not disliked at all. I know, like, I don't know. I, I, that kind of depends on who you talk to, too, because they were, I know a lot of kids are like, I never remember him being picked on. I never remember him being bullied. 
but he just didn't really talk to anybody. Yeah. I mean, how to say it? Like, it would be easy to overlook it or not notice it because he is one of those kind of fades into the background type of people because he want. it seemed like he yeah. either wanted to be at that time or he just wasn't capable of. Yeah. Yeah. They said that the like one person student that like went to school with them said that the thing that they remembered most about him was essentially how invisible he was. Mm-hmm. Like, just basically not there. Yeah. In middle school, though, things changed. He was painfully shy and was bullied for it. By the eighth grade, he was diagnosed with selective mutism, which I did not know anything about this until I didn't either. this case. So Mark gives us the definition of this. It's an anxiety disorder in which a person who is otherwise capable of speech becomes unable to speak when exposed to specific situations, specific places, or to specific people, one or multiple of which are serving as triggers. So it's not that he cannot speak. He just will not. And this starts to get worse and worse. The bullying wasn't just for his shyness, though. English wasn't his first language. And because of that, he had difficulty speaking sometimes and getting his point across. He had different speech mannerisms that people picked on him for. At least once on his record, he was also bullied because of his ethnicity. When he was in ninth grade, the Columbine attack happened. He was reportedly transfixed by the news and would watch anything he could regarding the massacre. And it wasn't how maybe any of us might be paying attention to that. Well, right, because... uh huge developing tragedy like that, it's going to get your attention and you want, it's going to, I don't know the right word. You're going to be intrigued or interested by it because it's just so awful. Why? How? What Mm -hmm. happened here? That's not what he was doing. No, it's no, that's not what he was doing. He idolized the shooters for lack of a better term. He even wrote a paper in school about wanting to quote, repeat Columbine. See, that's that, we got a problem here. Exactly. And the teacher was very concerned. That paper was reported to his sister, who relayed it to his parents. He was sent to a psychiatrist after that, but he still graduated in 2003. And, like, nothing really came of that. I mean, he went to a psychiatrist, but that was it. When he was in high school, he was placed in the special education program classified as an emotional disturbance. According to the family, they were told that his mutism was caused by a form of autism. No known diagnosis of autism has been found in his records, though. He did receive mental health therapy throughout high school. After the massacre at Virginia Tech, the school released a review panel report, which dove into his past and mental health. A clinical psychologist said that based on the videos he made before the attack, he, quote, wasn't autistic and was capable of talking to people. A later report said that it was more likely that he suffered from Asperger's syndrome. While his family had him seek mental health professionals, they also leaned heavily on their church to address his problems. Their pastor helped where he could, but noted that when he would talk to the young man, he rarely said a complete sentence. I mean, there's only so much you can do, first of all, as a pastor. I mean, this really does need to be addressed by professionals. Mm -hmm. But if... If you've got a person who won't speak at all, you know, 
you don't know what they're feeling. You don't know how they're, you know, like well, it's not going to be a productive yeah. situation. And I do wonder, and we'll get into it a little bit later, but I don't doubt that there was mental health issues. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I do wonder if any of it, or if there was any part of him that just felt like he was better than everybody else and didn't want to waste the breath on talking to them. Well, that's entirely possible, especially considering, yeah, what we learn after for sure. In 2003, he enrolled at Virginia Tech, majoring in business information technology. But by his senior year, he had changed to an English major with plans on becoming a writer. While he attended the school, several professors that came into contact with him would urge him to seek counseling. Specifically, he was in a poetry class in 2005 taught by Nikki Giovanni. Looking back, she said that he had a, quote, mean streak and his behavior was, quote, menacing. He would wear sunglasses in class and all but refused to participate in class discussions. See, and this is, I mean, again, selective mutism, right? Mm -hmm. But his... It's like he had a problem with authority or being told, you know, everything has to be on his terms. Yeah. Yep. That's what I'm seeing a lot of. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really true. That's a good point. Giovanni said that he intimidated the female students by trying to photograph their legs under their desks. Okay. That's sexual harassment. Like, first of all. Yeah. Or by writing violent and obscene poetry. She wanted him removed from her class, and she talked to the department head, Lucinda Roy. Giovanni told Roy that she would resign before she continued teaching with him in her class. I mean, and I wonder if she also reported him to anybody else, because I'm sorry, but taking pictures of women's legs under their desk is the equivalent of upskirt pictures to me. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of them were wearing skirts. Like, that's mm-hmm. not okay. Well, yeah, no matter what, you have to... Consent. How many times do we talk about yeah, it? Yeah, like, exactly. It doesn't matter what you're taking a picture of. If yeah. if I sat here, or if I if we were out and you didn't see me, and I was just taking pictures of you, creepy, weird, like yeah. And then especially start. you add like under a desk. That's super weird. So weird. Yeah. So Lucinda Roy, that the I guess English department head. Um, I would say so. She already had experience with the shooter. She had taught him in Introduction to Poetry the year before. Eventually, due to his writing and demeanor, she told him to stop attending class and taught him one-on-one instead. She would grow more and more worried for her safety and had a code word set up with her assistant to alert security if necessary. (sighs) Yeah. Everybody that he comes in contact with doesn't feel safe has an issue. It's never a um a seamless easy. Right. Professor Giovanni said I will I will quit my job, something that you uh, she obviously worked very very hard for to be a professor at a university, a highly acclaimed university. And she's like I'm going to have to leave here if you can't get him out of my class. Mm-hmm. That's how unsafe I feel and that's how unsafe I feel like my other students are. Well, in the head of the department had to a code word just in case that's a fucking problem mm-hmm. i mean that's bad after the massacre occurred giovanni said that she quote knew when it happened that that's probably who it was and she would have been shocked if it wasn't him and of course i'm sure you know before this they're not thinking he's going to come and shoot up the school they just feel unsafe like individually or at least in the classroom but if you have to set up a code word because you feel so unsafe around a student, 
then that student doesn't need to be, something needs to happen. I don't know exactly what the answer is, but people aren't safe around him. Well, and obviously people walking up to him and begging him to seek counseling is not the answer because it's not working. Right. Yeah. And you will find out that nobody, you know, follows up on that kind of stuff anyway. Like it just, you know, slipped through the cracks for sure. Unsurprisingly, students also reported that he was pretty odd. I'm sure. Yeah. During one English class on the first day, there was a sign-in sheet for the students to sign. And he assigned his name as a question mark. From there, he was known as the question mark kid. When he was a freshman, he made an attempt to socialize with other people. But by his senior year, he had isolated himself almost completely. Well, see, and this is, I mean, we've covered enough cases by now. Complete and total isolation. Mm -hmm. Bad things are going to happen. I mean, the Unabomber. Yes. um, Bruce Blackman and, uh, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so he had told everyone at one point that he had a girlfriend named Jelly, but he sa- he told them this was an imaginary girlfriend. Where'd she live? Oh, I forget. Where did she live? Space. She's from space. Oh, that's right. She's from space. That's right. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that, so he's telling this to his roommate. And they were drinking. And I have to, is this his first encounter drinking? Like he, I know he he wasn't going to frat parties and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I don't think that you, I don't think anybody referred to him as like a partier. Yeah. But his roommate, Andy, had invited him to a party. Very nice of Andy to do. That's what I thought. And so he went and that's when he's like, yeah, I have this imaginary girlfriend named Jelly and she lives in space. Mm-hmm. Like, and she's a supermodel. Yeah. And well, and well, his name was Spanky. That's right. She called him Spanky. Yeah. Jelly called him Spanky. But they continued to invite him places. And I don't know. Like, I just thought it was interesting that they were like, okay, he's just quirky. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. But during one Thanksgiving break, he called Andy and said that he was vacationing with Vladimir Putin in North Carolina. I did not know Vladimir Putin enjoyed North Carolina. Now you do. The more you know. The more you know. So eventually, this guy, Andy, and another roommate, John Eady, had to stop talking to him and start distancing themselves. And, like, he said, too, that, like, sometimes the shooter would call one of them, and he would be like, this is question mark. Like, you know, it was like he was adopting multiple personalities. So this, you're not speaking to me. You're speaking to question mark. And then he would be like, you know, you'd kind of play along with it for a little bit. And you'd be like, haha, very funny, whatever. And then after a while, you're tired of it. And you're like, hey, I know it's you. And he's like, no, this is question mark. Like, I mean, you know, that's mm-hmm. just difficult to deal with. So one night he ends up standing in Andy's doorway and just started taking pictures of him without saying a word, just taking pictures. And yeah. And they ended up like, they ended up getting in a fight about it because Andy took a picture back of him and he flew off the handle about that. But after, you know, this kind of stuff, his roommate started telling people like, look, just don't come to our dorm. We'll come hang out with you, especially female friends don't come here. Like You're not safe and you're not going to feel safe. Yeah, exactly. Two female students reported him to the Virginia Tech campus police because they felt like he was stalking them. They issued him warnings, but the students didn't press charges. 
which burns my bucket. Not that they didn't press charges, but because nothing can go forward if they don't. Mm -hmm. Like when you're afraid of somebody, you don't want to be seen as angering them. It's provoking them. Yeah. By pressing charges Mm -hmm. like that should be there should be a different process for that. But he used the online persona question mark to talk to women. He had a whole account, Facebook account for question mark. It's a lot. He did a lot to perpetuate this question mark personality. Yes. On at least two occasions, police came to their dorm room to talk to him regarding his behavior toward female students online. During one, they also questioned him about suicide threats that he had made as well. One student filed a complaint that he had made threats to her online and showed up uninvited to her dorm. The police told him not to contact her, which he did comply with. Later, he contacted one of his roommate's female friends via AOL Instant Messenger. That's a throwback. Missed that all day long. And wrote a line from Romeo and Juliet. Initially, she wrote it off, but Andy reached out to her and was like, I think this guy is dangerous. He like he might be schizophrenic, but he has some violent tendencies. Like you definitely need to watch out. So she contacted campus police and they told him to stop contact with her as well. Later that day, he emailed his roommate and said that, quote, he might as well kill himself. Andy contacted his roommate's dad and told him about the suicide threat. They both contacted campus police who went back to the dorm room. Okay, and now we're we're responding to multiple complaints about one student that I feel unsafe around him, that he's threatening to kill himself. He's threatening me. He's contacting me and I don't want him to. He's like, I don't feel safe. Um, I, mean, I think many, he's stalking me. Yeah, how many warnings yeah. does Do this guy need? get before you take action? Exactly. They escorted him to the New River Valley Community Services Board, which is a mental health agency that worked in Blacksburg. Once there, he underwent a psychiatric assessment and was found to be mentally ill and in need of hospitalization. But his insight and judgment were normal. After the assessment, he was released, but was labeled as an imminent danger to himself and others because of mental illness. He was ordered, court-ordered, to attend treatment as an outpatient, but he never did. And then nobody followed up on it. No court officials, nobody in the hospital, no Virginia Tech official, nobody. He was court ordered and in his record says he's an imminent danger to him or others. And they were like, well, good luck. Mm -hmm. I hope you'll show up. Yeah. Certainly can't force you to, though. Even though it's court order. Yeah, court order actually means that. Yeah. But he'll probably go, you know? I mean, yeah. He didn't go. Yeah. If he's mentally ill, Even if he's not mentally ill and you're ordering him to do something that he doesn't want to do, he's just big fat, not going to fucking do it if you don't follow up on him. But he is mentally ill. So there's that possibility that he doesn't understand or he doesn't, you know, believe like that he needs, you know, there's all these things. Like you just, you can't just leave it in his hands and be like, well, I did my part. Yeah. And I filed the paperwork. Right. I mean, he's shown that he's defiant. Now, whether that has something to do with the mental illness or not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. but that kind of behavior doesn't say to me that he's going to comply if nobody's going to make him. Right. I mean, another reason this is such a huge point in this case is because based on his mental health and the fact that he was 
assessed as dangerous, Mm -hmm. he should have been disqualified from gun purchases Mm -hmm. and gun ownership. Someone who was involuntarily committed or ruled mentally incapacitated would be disqualified, but because he was not involuntarily committed to a mental health facility, he was still eligible to buy guns under Virginia law. But they also said he was in need of hospitalization. And was court ordered to do so. Hospitalization and an outpatient treatment are not the same thing. No. Hospitalization is inpatient. Mm -hmm. Like, I just, I just don't, you know? And so now he can go buy a gun because his background check's going to come back clean. I just don't understand that because they're not the same, obviously. Hospitalization and outpatient. One is greater than the other, in my opinion, because he was forced. To, I mean, they they brought him. Mm-hmm. But hospitalization, it definitely implies that you're going to be staying there, not dropping in and out. Right. As you see fit. But I would, yeah, I would think that because everything in this, everything leading up to what happened. And like you said, I don't know the right answer. I don't know what needed to happen, but I feel like there were all of these checkpoints that we could have been somebody could have been like possibly could have stopped it here possibly could have stopped it here Mm -hmm. maybe even here like yeah how many complaints do we need to have from teachers saying they'd rather quit their job that they've probably worked their whole life for than to have to teach this person who they feel that unsafe with Mm -hmm. and that their students are in danger to be around another teacher who's like well i'm gonna you know, I'm going to do one-on-one with him. But I have a safe word just in case because I don't trust him. I also don't feel safe. And all of these complaints from other students, all of these threats, all of these suicide threats, like even if he had not come back and murdered multiple people, if he had just died by suicide, and I don't mean just, but what I'm saying is in comparison to these other people, that's still a failure Mm-hmm. because he is a danger to himself as well. And you can 100% look at all of these things, even him kind of acting out in class as a cry for help. You know what I mean? He might not, I don't know if he really, I don't know if he thought to himself, I really want help, but that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, he needed help. Yeah, yeah. And he was lonely. Of course he was. Yeah. Ugh. Hey y'all, did you know that we release an update all about us and what we're up to each week on our Patreon? It's called T to the 4th Power Y, which is some time to talk to you, a nod to Not Another Teen Movie. Mm -hmm. And it's where we just gal pal with you about life, what we're watching, our love for Cracker Barrel Italian dressing. I mean, honestly, the sky's the limit. You never know what you're going to get, really. Mm -hmm. If you want to catch an episode without being a patron, you are in luck. Just head over to killerqueens.link slash tt. T-T-Y, okay, time to talk to you, four T's and a Y, and you'll get to hear a full episode for free. And you can get every single regular release episode ad-free for as little as $3 a month. That's less than half the price of the coffee I get at Starbucks, so. I know, that's crazy. I know, what a deal. Mm Mm-hmm. And for $10 a month, you get all that plus our other two Patreon-exclusive shows, Murder Mixtapes, which is a full bonus case each week, Recent cases are Tara Grinstead, Hannah Cornelius, and New York Body Snatchers, just to name a few. And you also get our other Patreon-exclusive show, Doc Jams, which is where we cover true crime documentaries episode by episode. We've done 
Don't Fuck With Cats. We've done Crime Scene on Netflix. They have Cecil Hotel and Times Square Killer. We've done The Jinx. We've done so many more. So be sure to head to killerqueens.link slash T-T-T-T-Y to get your free episode and hundreds more episodes to download right now and binge when you become a member of our Patreon community. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So we have to talk about the massacre stuff, guys. Yes. The attack occurred on April 16, 2007, but there was preparation. February 2007, he ordered a handgun online, a Walther P-22, 22 caliber handgun, which he picked up a few days later. March 2007, the date's unknown, but we know that he stayed in a motel in Roanoke and he hired a private dancer for a one-hour performance. On March 12th, he rented a van from Enterprise Rent-A-Car in Roanoke and kept it for almost a month. March 13th, he purchased a 9mm Glock and a box of ammunition. On uh, March 22nd, he went to a shooting range and practiced shooting and purchased more ammo. Range employees and patrons said that they remembered him, and he was videotaping himself in the parking lot in a maroon van. That same day, he purchased two more rounds, two 10-round magazines on eBay. That was tough stuff. And then (laughs) March 23rd, he purchased three more 10-round magazines on eBay. March 31st, he purchased additional ammo and a hunting knife from Walmart. How can you buy so much ammo on eBay? I know. That's a lot. April 2007, he returned the van to Enterprise. April 8th, he rented a room at the Hampton Inn in Christiansburg and videotaped segments for his video manifesto. April 13th, bomb threats were anonymously called into Torgerson, Durham, and Whittemore Halls on campus. April 14th, someone reported a suspicious-looking man in a hoodie near the entrance of Norris Hall, and some of the doors were chained shut. Guys! (sighs) That's a fucking problem. Yeah. Heighten your security. Something! Something. Let's bring in, yeah, a few more guards. Check it out! Yeah. On April 15th, he called his family in Fairfax County one last time. Now we have to get to April 16th. Around 7 a.m., he went into Ambler Johnston Hall and began to search the fourth floor room by room. It's not clear who he was looking for, but he eventually confronted Emily Jane Hilshire. And that's when Ryan Clark, the floor's resident assistant, stepped in and told him to keep the noise down. That's when the gunman pulled out a handgun and killed both Hilshire and Clark. Police are notified by 7.15 and Blacksburg police come in and clear the building while establishing a perimeter. On just this building? 
Seems like it. Yeah. Even though in other halls, he... Somebody was shot on school premises, shut the whole fucking thing down. Well, that's a problem that a lot of people had. We'll get to that. Yes. I just... It's painful to... Of course it is. Yeah. Well, again, it's... I mean, hindsight, 2020, sure. You would think, though, that if you are part of a security team for a campus, you would have something like that in place. This is after Columbine. It's not unheard of to have a school shooting. Unfortunately. And we've got notification of a shooting at seven in the morning, and we don't have the shooter in custody. Mm -mm. That's what we in the biz call a fucking active shooter. Well, yeah. And this continues on for several hours. Yes. So between then and 9.30 a.m., West Ambler Hall was put on lockdown. The school's leadership team met to discuss the situation and determine the best way to tell the university about the homicides. They were briefed by the campus police chief, Wendell Flincham. At 9 a.m., he overnighted a package to NBC News in New York. It contained photographs, videos, and writings, but he used the wrong zip code, and the package wouldn't be delivered until Wednesday. Just before 9.30, the campus police sent out an email to faculty and students informing them of the shooters in Ambler Johnston Hall. So I don't know what that was supposed to do. Right, yeah. Just to be like, hey guys, just to let you know. Because is it a warning? Like, what are right. we... Right, yeah, what are we doing with that? Yeah. Just to let you know that somebody... It's not like, hey, you know, we... Barricade need, yourselves in your... Yeah, yeah, we need to let you know that somewhere else from here, two of our students were gunned down. It's here, or they were gunned down and we have the shooter in custody. We don't have that. Where is he? You don't know. Yeah. But, I don't, it just is informing them. I don't... So at this time, the police are under the impression that this is just an isolated incident. But why? Right. Yeah. Why do they just assume that? They learned that Hilshire had a boyfriend who she usually stayed with on the weekends off campus, and he would bring her back to her dorm on Mondays and drop her off. So they got search warrants for his home and began to question him. He was a student at nearby Radford University, but as they were interviewing him, a call came in that there was an active shooter at Norris Hall about a half a mile from the dorm. So now we can rule out the boyfriend because obviously he's not the one doing it, but mm-hmm. we've allowed this person. Yeah. Why would you just automatically assume that it's an isolated incident, though? I have no idea. Like, you have no reason to believe that. Well, and then also, if people are talking, if security's talking about what's happening around the school, the campus, a clue or something would have been the chains on the doors, somebody kind of sneaking around in a hoodie. Exactly. Yeah, because there's still very suspicious things happening during this time frame. Yeah, I mean, he's he's, prep- he's preparing. Yeah, exactly. So then we get to Norris Hall, which is in room 207. James Bishop was teaching elementary German when someone walked past the door and peeked through the window, and he assumed someone was lost looking for their class. About 10 minutes later, the gunman burst through the door and shot Bishop. He then turned to the students, and he opened fire as they dove and tried to hide behind desks and tables. The students in the front row were the first to die, unfortunately. After firing, he had to stop and reload, but he immediately started shooting again. And the student said that he was really quick at reloading his gun and that it seemed like he had been trained. Mm. One student said that he never said a word the entire time. Quote, I've never seen a straighter face. As suddenly as it started, it ended. He abruptly stopped. He left the room. And after he left, they heard shots ringing out down the hall. Derek Odell was shot in the arm, but he was helping other students barricade the door. A few minutes later, someone tried to push the door open, but was unable to. 
that's when or the gunman was unable to push the door open and he fired six shots through the door, striking two students. He left room 207 with almost a dozen fatalities and many others wounded. Quote, there was blood everywhere. And this is a quote from Aaron Sheehan. And it goes on to say, people in the class were passed out. I don't know, maybe from shock, from the pain. I was one of only four that made it out of the classroom. The rest were dead or injured. Jean Cole, a 52-year-old janitor at Virginia Tech, heard the shots and was told that there was a gunman upstairs. He made his way there to look for a coworker, and as he stepped in the hall, so did the shooter. Five shots rang out, and Cole immediately dove into a stairwell and ran down the steps and out the back of the building, and he said that he heard the bullets whiz by his head. I cannot imagine how terrifying. Yes. In room 206, Professor G.V. Loganothan, teaching and or advanced hydrology, is shot to death, along with two students, Julia Pride and Jarrett Lane. In room 204, Professor Levisu Librescu, Liviu Librescu, a Holocaust survivor, is interrupted during his lecture by banging and screaming from the next door. The shooter bursts through the door, and as he did, Liviu put himself between the gunman and the students and tried to barricade the door. He was shot to death as the students tried to hide. Some jumped from the windows. He opened fire on the students for a minute and a half. That is love. To put himself in between. His yeah. students. These are people that, you know, like, I, I think I would do that for my children. But to do that for non-family members that you I mean, yeah I mean that's it. just incredible like I hope that I would but I don't I don't know yeah and you have a I don't even know if you have a split second to think about it you just do it you just do it yeah oh my gosh in room 211 professor Jocelyn Couture Nowak was teaching intermediate French when she they heard the shots she looked outside quickly and ordered the students to the back of the room they attempted to barricade the door but the gunman burst through and opens fire he walked down an aisle and randomly shot students before leaving the room. He only left briefly, though, and Colin Goddard was hiding behind a desk. He had been hit three times. One broke his left femur, and as he was hiding, he heard the shooter come back in and heard one or two more shots and then silence. Mm-hmm. Almost immediately, police entered the room and radioed that the shooter is down. He killed himself in room 211 amongst the bodies of several victims. Goddard grabbed his cell phone and immediately texted his mom, quote, I'm okay, got shot, come. Can you imagine getting that text? No. I'm okay, I've been shot. Like, what? Oh my gosh. When the police arrived at Norris Hall after the initial call, they discovered that the doors had been changed shut. And it looked, it took them around five minutes to gain entry into the building. But after breaching, they followed the trail of destruction and gunshots until they found the shooter's body. They discovered that he had two handguns on him, the 9mm and the 22 caliber that he had purchased months before. He was wearing a backpack that had dozens of rounds of ammo, along with several knives and prescription medication that related to the treatment of his psychological problems. There was also a note that said that was said to contain countless obscenities and angry condemnation of, quote, rich kids, which there was some like there was an interview with one of the students at Virginia Tech and he was like this is not a school for this isn't Princeton yeah we're not just riding around in like Rolls Royces and just drinking ourselves you know like Mm -hmm. partying with our parents money like this is not who is he talking about when he says this right 
Around 9.50 a.m., an email goes out to every Virginia Tech email address saying, quote, a gunman is loose on campus. Stay in buildings until further notice. Stay away from all windows. Is email? I'm sorry. Just wondering. Maybe there's not another protocol for this. If you're in class, you're not checking your email. You can't. I mean, you shouldn't be. So is there no loudspeaker or something that can like interrupt all things and be like, there is a shooter, active shooter, hide. Like, yeah, I have no idea. You know, because sending an email out to everybody. Yeah. I mean, okay, 2007. Phones are not like they are now. Right. I get notifications when I get an email. Did they get them back? You know, like that, not unless you had a BlackBerry. Uh, tell me about it. Oh my I gosh. know, I know, and and a phone charm, <laughs> right? And back then, two thousand seven. So let's see. I guess I'm thinking the only movie that I can think of around that time where I remember somebody bringing like a laptop to class in college was Legally Blonde. Mm-hmm. But was that like when you went to school? Did you have a laptop with you? Absolutely not. Yeah. So not like, how thing. would you check email? Exactly. Yeah. In class. Exactly. You couldn't. So what does that do? Like, are colleges not equipped with loudspeakers like other schools are? I mean, you would think yeah. you would have that ability. Right. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. I have or, no idea. Or some kind of alarm. You know, there's a fire alarm. Code, whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. A bomb threat. Like, what? let's do an alarm so that people know that there's something happening. But, like, sending an email? Yep. I know it doesn't seem like it's enough or the right way to have handled that. But an Asian American student who was who worked as a photographer for the student paper was outside of Burris Hall taking pictures, and he was arrested because he'd matched the description of the shooter, which was a quote, an Asian American in a blue jacket. He was photographed laying face down in handcuffs, but he would be released a few hours later after it was determined that he wasn't involved. That's got to be. A very, I mean, on top of the shootings, exactly. now he's being arrested. Yeah. Yeah. Paramedics are on scene triaging and working on getting people to the hospitals. But one roadblock is that all medical helicopters have been grounded. So there was a nor'easter over the weekend, which is a bad storm in the Northeast. I had to look that up because mm-hmm. I was watching American Horror Story. I heard the term nor'easter. Never heard oh, it. Oh, uh-huh. And there were still extremely high winds making air transport impossible. It's like all of these things Uh came together to make this so difficult. Right. Yeah. When all the shootings stopped, there were 32 casualties plus the shooter. There was an additional 23 that survived, 17 of which were caused by gunfire. Back in South Korea, although the shooter and his family had left years ago, the country and its citizens still felt a great sense of public shame. A candlelight vigil was held outside of the U.S. Embassy in Seoul the government convened an emergency meeting to consider possible ramifications. On April 20th, the gunman's family released a statement written by his older sister. The statement was one of grief, sorrow, and an apology. She said, quote, he has made the world weep. We are living a nightmare. Our family is so very sorry for my brother's unspeakable actions. It is a terrible tragedy for all of us. We pray for their families and loved ones who are experiencing so much excruciating grief. And we pray for those who were injured and for those whose lives are changed forever because of what they witnessed and experienced. Each one of these people, or each of these people, had so much love, talent, and gifts to offer, and their lives were cut short by a horrible and senseless act. I can't imagine the sense of responsibility that you would feel for something like that that a family member does that you have obviously no control over, but Mm -hmm. like 
just like, oh my gosh. Well, and I can't, I mean, I feel for everybody in this whole situation because there's so many victims, Mm -hmm. but it didn't occur to me until we started doing this podcast, how difficult it must be to be the family of the perpetrator of the shooter of the whatever, because everybody's looking to you, the whole entire world sometimes is looking to you being like, what happened? Uh We need answers. Exactly. Also, didn't his sister go to Princeton? I think she did. Because like, who he's angriest at? Yeah, people said too, they're like, he wasn't, he wasn't an incredibly wealthy kid, but he certainly was also not poor. Like, they but were, he has a lot of anger towards people who he perceives to be, quote, rich kids. Yeah. I don't know. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Hey, you guys. Um, it's us again. Yay. It's us. We threw, we threw you for a loop on this one. <laughs> so we know that a lot of you have been asking, like, WTF, where are episodes 1 through 44? And guess what? Now you can have them. So let's just remember, though, we need you to take a little caution here. We didn't know exactly what we were doing back then. And we started this podcast as just a fun thing to do as sisters. We had no idea that it would grow into this super awesome club with you guys. So what we're saying is the audio wasn't super amazing, but the content is 100% us just being us and talking about some true crime with 90s flair. Okay, so here are the details. You'll be able to access our what we're calling OG episodes in your favorite podcast app through a private and custom RSS feed link. So to grab that, head over to killerqueens.link slash OG and snag episodes one through 44 today. That's killerqueens.link slash OG. After the shooting, the university's handling of the situation came under fire, which we've already, we've come under fire from us too. Mm Mm-hmm. They were criticized for not putting the entire school into lockdown after the initial double homicide. You're damn right. Yeah. They were also called out about letting the shooter fall through the cracks when they knew about his numerous incidents and inappropriate behavior with female students and mental health situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. The campus workers who would be the ones to help him with his mental health were never informed about his stay in the mental facility and never followed up with him. Parents were furious that no one was being held accountable for the massacre, asking during a call with the governor's office, quote, can you explain how 32 people were killed and no one has been fired? No one has been held accountable at the university. I mean, there are no words for that. Not one person followed up on anything. Whose responsibility is it once a court order is issued to verify that the court order has been carried out. Yes, has been carried, like, at the very least. Why give one if you don't give a shit if it happens or not? Exactly. Like, well, put my stamp on it, did my job, done. And I am completely aware of the fact that people make mistakes, right? We're human. It happens. But there are just some things in life that somebody's got to do right, you know? Like, yeah, these are not mistakes that can be made because look what happens. Well, and it wasn't just one person missed a step. Absolutely, it's multiple. So many different things. Like, I mean, is there not a policy that if we get, you know, X number of complaints about an individual, there needs to be an investigation? Mm -hmm. Not even just if three people complain, then you kick them out of the school necessarily. Right. Because I know, you know, people that can go awry or whatever, but there needs to be an investigation or 
if a teacher says, I can't have the student in my class because I feel unsafe and I feel unsafe for my other students, then we need to look into that and figure out why instead of just being like, well, we'll just move him to a different class. Like, pass the buck. Let him be somebody else's problem. It's not fixing anything. Oh my gosh, it's so awful. So we're going to spend the remainder of the show just giving a little bit of information about each victim. Again, you know, there are 32 people that were murdered. And unfortunately, we can't do, you know, a full background on each person, but we do want to at least talk about them and honor them in a way that we can. Jamie Bishop, 35, was a German instructor teaching in a classroom in Norris Hall before he was killed. He moved from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to Virginia Tech when his wife got a job there. Known as Jamie, he grew up in the small town of Pine Mountain, Georgia. He attended the University of Georgia and also spent time in Germany as a Fulbright scholar. In addition to languages and teaching, Bishop loved art and technology. His friend Jacques Morin said Bishop was passionate about everything. Do you want to go back? Oh, sure. All right. Jocelyn Couture Nowak, she was 49, was a French instructor at Virginia Tech. Her daughter, Francine DeLong, told the Daily News of Halifax, quote, my mother was a very big opponent of guns. She really abhorred violence, especially with guns. I definitely could see her fighting to the end. Kevin Granada, 45, was a professor of engineering science and mechanics. He'd served in the military and later conducted orthopedic research in hospitals before coming to Virginia Tech. He and his students researched muscle and reflex response to robotics. Ishwar Puri, head of the school's engineering science and mechanics department, says Granada was one of the top, top five biomechanics researchers in the country and was working on movement diam... diam mm. I'm not a top biomechanic researcher in the country. <laughs> uh, was working on movement dynamics in cerebral palsy. Liviu Librescu, 76, was an engineering science and mathematics lecturer. He was also among the victims at Norris Hall. Students say Librescu, Librescu tried to keep the gunmen from entering the room so that others could jump out the windows to save themselves. Mm. Born and educated in Romania, Librescu was internationally known for his research in aeronautical engineering. He was also a Holocaust survivor. Engineering department head Ishwar Puri said Librescu, was, who was born in a communist country, had a, quote, great thirst for freedom. Jeez. G.V. Loganathan? Loganathan? Yeah, Loganathan. Okay. G.V. Loganathan was a professor of civil and environmental engineering. He was 53. He was born in southern Indiana and had been a professor at Virginia Tech since 1982. He taught courses in hydraulics, hydrology, and water resources engineering and was a core advisor for undergraduates in the department. His students described him as one of their favorites, and he received several awards for excellence in teaching. On a Virginia Tech website, one colleague described Loganathan as, quote, truly one of the most outstanding classroom educators within the College of Engineering. Mm -hmm. Ross Alamedin. 20, was a sophomore English major from Saugus, Massachusetts. A memorial page on Facebook describes him as, quote, an intelligent, funny, easygoing guy. Brian Bloom, 25, was working toward a master's degree in water resources, according to the Virginia Tech website. He had received an undergraduate degree from Virginia Tech in civil engineering. 
On a memorial page on Facebook, Amy Miley of Virginia Tech wrote, quote, Brian was a very happy individual. You couldn't help but smile when you were around him. Let's all shed our tears and smile in his memory. Ryan Clark, 22, was a senior with a triple major in biology, English, and psychology. The native of Columbia County, Georgia, was known by the nickname Stack. Clark was one of the first two victims killed at the Virginia Tech campus. He was a student resident advisor at the West Ambler Johnston Dormitory, where he was gunned down. Clark was just a month away from graduation. He was active in the school's Marching Virginians Band. He had hoped to pursue a doctorate in psychology. Mm. Austin Cloyd, 18, was an international studies major from Blacksburg. The family moved to Virginia in 2005 from Champaign, Illinois, where they were active members of Reverend Terry Harder's church. Harder told the Associated Press that Cloyd was a, quote, very delightful, intelligent, warm young lady. She played basketball and volleyball in high school and went on mission trips to Appalachia, he said. Daniel Perez Cueva, 21, was majoring in international relations. Friend Hugo Quintero described him as, quote, very responsible with schoolwork, very mature, but with a humorous side. The friends who met in the lunch line in high school in Woodbridge, Virginia, like to joke around. Quintero said Perez Cueva had been excited about applying for internships with the French and Italian embassies in Washington. Matthew Gwaltney, 24, was a graduate student in civil and environmental engineering and was close to finishing his degree. His high school principal, Robert Stansberry, told the Associated Press that Gwaltney had been named, quote, best guy to take home to your parents in high school, where he was also sports editor for the school newspaper. Hmm. Caitlin Hamarin, 19, was a sophomore majoring in international studies in French. She graduated in 2005 from Minisink from Minisink Valley High School in Slate Hill, New York, and was a talented musician. Cameron played the violin and sang. She was also a strong student and wanted to go into international politics. Quote, she actually has been described as someone who was like a magnet for other kids and a role model. Always very positive. Students at the high school have talked about Hammerin in their classes, and school officials are trying to do what her father told Murray he wanted them to do, quote, celebrate her. Jeremy Herbstritt was 27 and was a graduate student in civil engineering. Family members said in a statement that he was a good storyteller and a fun-loving person with a great sense of humor. He liked to kayak, run, and hike and love the outdoors. They also described him as a, quote, bright young man, a hard worker, and a wonderful son and brother. Rachel Hill, 18, a freshman, graduated from Grove Avenue Christian School in Henrico County, Virginia. Her high school superintendent and pastor, Clay Fogler, said in a statement that, quote, the world has lost one of its brightest prospects. He said she was a, or she was beautiful, intelligent, and a leader, and she had a very close relationship with her parents. Quote, one of her beloved scriptures is Song of Solomon 8, 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? He said, quote, Rachel saw herself as one coming out of the wilderness and needing to lean on her savior more and more. On a memorial page set up on Facebook, Hillary Albert of East Carolina wrote, quote, God wanted another beautiful and perfect angel up there in heaven with him. Emily Hilsher, 19, was a freshman majoring in animal and poultry sciences. A native of Woodville, Virginia, Hilsher was a 2006 graduate of Rappahannock County High School. Sorry if I mispronounced that. She was known around her hometown as an animal lover and had worked at a veterinarian's office there. 
On a memorial page on Facebook, Lauren Kintner of Virginia Tech recalled, quote, Emily was amazing. She was so filled with life and always had something wonderful to say or was always making me smile. Jarrett Lane, 22, was a senior studying civil engineering. He had been valedictorian of his high school class at Narrows, Virginia, in Narrows, Virginia. According to Lane's friend, Justin Waldron, the school put up a memorial to Lane that included pictures, musical instruments, and his athletic jerseys. Lane played the trombone, ran track, and played football and basketball. Waldron said in a Facebook entry that Lane was, quote, loved by everyone and hated by none. Matthew Laporte, 20, was a sophomore from Dumont, New Jersey, majoring in university studies. He was a 2005 graduate of Carson Long Military Institute, a private boys' school in New Bloomfield, PA, that offers military training according to its Alumni Association's website. During a graduation speech, he said that the school had changed his life, according to the Associated Press. And I feel like I can't, I like, I'm always like, eerie PA. Yeah. Henry J. Lee, 20, was a freshman majoring in computer engineering. He attended William Fleming High School in Roanoke, Virginia. His principal, Susan Willis, said Lee came to the United States from China in elementary school and didn't speak English. He changed his name from Hen to Henry when he became a U.S. citizen last year. Lee, who was the salutatorian of the class, was reluctant to speak at his graduation in June because he was nervous about talking in front of thousands of people, but he eventually agreed, and Willis said it was, quote, a proud moment for him. Teachers at William Fleming High, who saw Lee over Christmas break, said that he was smiling and upbeat about his future at Virginia Tech. Pardahi Lumbantoruan, 34, I'm so sorry because I know I didn't pronounce that correctly was a civil engineering doctoral student from Indonesia. His family told the Associated Press he wanted to become a teacher in the United States, and they sold property and cars to pay his tuition. Well, we tried everything to completely finance his studies in the United States, said his father. We only wanted him to succeed in his studies, but he met a tragic fate. Hmm. Mm. Lauren McCain, 20, was an international studies major. On her MySpace page, she said Jesus Christ was the love of her life. Leonard Riley, a former pastor at the church, or her church, told the Virginian pilot he has known the family for about 10 years, quote, you meet a lot of young people in your life, but not a lot will make the impression that Lauren did. To know her was to love her. She was always ready and willing to do something for someone. Daniel O'Neill, 22, was an engineering graduate student from Lincoln, Rhode Island. His friend Steve Crevero told the Associated Press that O'Neill was a hard worker and someone who never got into trouble. Quote, he loved his family. He was pretty much destined to be extremely successful. He just didn't deserve to have happen what happened. O'Neill also played guitar and wrote songs that he recorded and posted on his website. Juan Ramon Ortiz, 26, a graduate student studying civil engineering, was from Puerto Rico. Quote, he was an extraordinary son, what any father would have wanted. Ortiz's father, also named Juan Ramon Ortiz, told the Associated Press. Neighbors of the family in Bayamon, a San Juan suburb, told the Associated Press that Ortiz was a quiet and dedicated son who played in a salsa band with his father. Minal Panjal, 26, was a graduate student from India who wanted to become an architect. A friend told the Associated Press that Panjal was thrilled when she was admitted to Virginia Tech last year. Quote, she was a brilliant student and very hardworking. She was focused on getting her degree and doing well. Aaron Peterson, 18, was a freshman majoring in international studies. 
She had been a basketball standout at Westfield High School in Chantilly, Virginia, and was inducted into the National Honor Society as a high school senior in 2005. Peterson's high school basketball coach, Pat Deegan, said she was a good student and an excellent athlete who, quote, made it her business to make everyone around her a better person. He said members of the basketball team shared anecdotes about how Peterson reached out when they were new to the school or nervous about playing their first varsity game. Peterson played on the varsity team for three years and was captain her senior year. She attended the same high school as the gunmen. Michael Pohl Jr., 23, was a biology major close to graduating Virginia Tech. Pohl had played football on the cross while attending Hunterton Central Regional High School. Quote, he was a great all-around kid, and it's just tragic that his life was cut so short in such a senseless act of violence, his high school principal, Craig Blanton, told the Star-Ledger of Newark. Julia Pride, 23, was a graduate student from Middleton, New Jersey. She had been in G.V. Loganothan's advanced hydrology class when she was killed, her advisor, Mary Lee Wolf, told the Asbury Park Press. Wolf, a professor of biological systems at Virginia Tech, said Pride graduated with a bachelor's degree in biological systems engineering last spring. Quote, she always tried to make a difference herself rather than try to ask someone else to do something. Mary Reed, 19, was a freshman from Annandale, Virginia. She hadn't yet picked a major at Virginia Tech. Quote, I think she wanted to try to spread her wings, her aunt Karen Cuppinger told the Associated Press. Reed, who was a part of an Air Force family, was born in South Korea and had also lived in Texas and California. Rima Samaha, 18, was a freshman from a close-knit Centerville, Virginia family of Lebanese descent. She loved acting, dance, and drama, and was studying French, said Luann McNabb, a family friend. Samaha was close to her older brother and sister, and her family traveled to Beirut to visit her mother's family almost every summer. Rima attended the same high school as Aaron Peterson and the gunman. Walid Shalon, 32, was a doctoral student in civil engineering. He had begun attending Virginia Tech in the fall of 2006. He'd been married for three years and had a one-year-old son. His roommate, Fahad Pasha, said on the association's website that Shalon was planning to bring his family to Virginia soon. Quote, he was the simplest and nicest guy I ever knew. We would be studying for our exams and he would go buy a cake and make tea for us, he said. Leslie Sherman, 20, was a sophomore majoring in history and international relations. She graduated in 2005 from West Springfield High School in Springfield, Virginia. Her friend, Buddy Miller, also a sophomore at Virginia Tech, said Sherman wanted to join the Peace Corps after college. Sherman loved the Russian language and Russian history, Miller said. He described her as someone who was always happy and optimistic. Maxine Turner, 22, was majoring in chemical engineering. She was also a mentor to fellow chemical engineering student Beth Fairchild. They were both members of an engineering sorority, Alpha Omega Epsilon, and shared a love of Taekwondo. Fairchild writes this about her sorority, Big Sister. Quote, Max was, if anything, a great friend. She'd always be there for you through the good times and bad and was only a call away. She was very peace-loving and friendly, which only accentuates the horrible tragedy that befell her. Nicole White, 20, was a junior majoring in international studies. Chance Hellman, who graduated with White from Smithfield High School in Virginia and attends Virginia Tech, told the Daily Press of Hampton Roads that White worked cleaning stables and caring for horses at a barn in high school. She was known for loving animals and worked summers as a lifeguard. While these are the people who lost their lives that day, there were countless other victims. Some were also shot that day and made a recovery. 
Many who were there that day still carry psychological wounds, and they work daily to overcome the obstacles from that and recover. Many survivors have expressed survivor's guilt and question why they're still here while so many lost their lives that day. After the massacre, then-President George Bush said, quote, Schools should be places of safety and sanctuary and learning. When that sanctuary is violated, the impact is felt in every American classroom and every American community. Ugh. I basically did the thing that I do when I'm getting a pedicure and they're rubbing my feet. I try not to laugh and be too. Uh-huh. So I'm just like trying, like I was trying to, and I, I hope this doesn't sound awful, but I was trying to read it, but not focus on it because there were so many times that I was like, I'm about to lose my shit. Like I'm about to lose it. Make the tears get back in your eyeballs. Yes. Like I have to get through this because there are, there's 32 names. I mean, and you, you know, you want to, you want to give every single one of them something. It's just, yeah. Honor them as much as we can. It's just so tragic and so senseless and, Mm -hmm. and so preventable. I'm sorry, but preventable. I mean, I think that the system, a lot of systems failed, mm-hmm. which in turn failed so many people. Yes. I hope that after something like this, because the thing is, and this is going to sound maybe morbid, I wish it was different, but as far as I can tell, shootings are not going to stop. People, right. it's it's just going to be a thing that people do. Yeah. I hope that at the very, very least, we can learn something mm-hmm. and we can say, okay, um, after the first two, lock the entire campus down. Mm-hmm. Put it all on lockdown. Mm-hmm. But let's say before that, let's look into a court-ordered outpatient mental health facility stay mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. And, and <sighs> when there's a court order, somebody needs to follow up on that. Yeah. Because the court order means you have to. Yeah. I mean, that's Social workers follow up on stuff like that all of the time. Yeah. I mean, if I tell my kid, you have to clean your room, am I just going to assume he did it? Well, yeah. I never check and just, you know. Like, well, he was up in his room for an hour. I'm sure he did it. Yeah. I'm sure he he wasn't writing all over the walls with a crayon. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm going to check. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. Again, what is the point of a court order if you you don't give a shit if it's going to be fulfilled or not? It just doesn't make any sense. Carry it out. Exactly. I just, yeah, there are so many things. And again, I think that it's important to say for us, like, we don't know what the answer is here. Right. But this isn't good enough and it needs to change. No. Somebody who is more knowledgeable and well-equipped to answer that question. Yeah, yeah there wasn't, there just, there wasn't just one ball dropped is the thing. Mm-mm. That was, every ball was dropped. Yeah. And there were many. Ball pit of balls dropped. Yes. It was a whole ball pit. Yes. Yeah. It's terrible. Ugh. Okay. Well, that's it, guys. Um, we love you. If you made it to the end, God bless you. You're a trooper. And uh, you know, don't forget to check out our other Patreon shows this week. Definitely check out the Doc Jam this week if you need something to uplift you, because that one nobody dies. So no. nice. And it's episode three. So with those, it's. Every two episodes is a separate case. So we'll be starting. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, its own. The first episode of that case. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. We love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, you know what time it is. (laughs) 
Shadow time, shadow time, shadow time. Yay. Yay. Um, so we want to give a Hey Girl thanks to some of our newest patrons. Thank you to Hillary O'Shields. Mara Jordan. Megan. Jessica Durham. L. Voss. Angelina Rupert. Roberta Matheny. Jacinta Burgess Garbutt. Emma Leonard. Megan. Danielle Loomis. Rachel Baker. Ariel Manise. Fatima Andrade. Victoria Price. Sheridan Francis. Cassidy. Cora. Darcy. Kia Cooper. Gianna Giorno. Amanda. Sarah Parks. Rita Williams. Megan. Haley Fight. Megan Elizabeth. Chanel Van Tonder. Natalie C. Ann Cormia. Kate Cockshorn. Melissa Moore. Erin Burtuck. Brittany Carter. Emily Tillipog. Alyssa. Corinne Congdon. Brianna Caulfield. Brittany England. And Zita Oro. Thank you guys so much. We love you. We love if you, you want your shout out, join the Patreon at $10 or up. Yes, we love you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.